Coming up on episode 72 of the Upful Life podcast. Justin. I think a big part, and I say this in my, my little master classes, but confidence comes from, uh, from preparation in, in my book. Being able to be confident enough to get on a stage and play the shit out of a part comes from doing your homework and learning the parts inside and out and, and not just learning you, your part, but learning everyone else's part. Um, if you've ever talked to Tony Hall for five seconds, that dude knows our horn lines better than us. And that's, I'm like not exaggerating. Tony is, he knows everything that's going on on that stage. And I mean, and, and then the, just the mentality that these musicians from the tradition of new Orleans know their music so well. And uh, there's like a right way to play it. There's more, there's more wrong ways to play it than there is the right way to play it. If that makes any sense. Like you, you hear cats trying to cover the NOLA shit and it's, it, there is a way you're supposed to do it, man. And that is by the book. Indeedy, welcome to the Upful Life Podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, and this is episode number 72, coming at you live and direct from the Vibe Junkie Studios in Oakland, California. Let me tell you, when I come through with episode 72, I'm going to kick it like kung fu. So grateful. You are tuning in. The Up for Life podcast is proudly sponsored by IMAVL, also known as Independent Arts and Music of Asheville. IMAVL has been preserving and promoting the creative community in Asheville, North Carolina since 2012, gradually watching Asheville become one of the hottest music scenes in the country. IMAVL does all they can do to support those making noise in Asheville and archive history in the making. With live stream installations in several area venues, IMAVL streams shows six nights a week, often several shows on any given night, making Asheville, North Carolina the very first city in the world with its music scene aggregated into one channel. Over 3,500 concerts in the archives, national to local acts, there's so much to explore. Not that long ago, IMAVL streamed seven stages across four days straight for the first annual multi-venue AVL Fest. 
Based out of the world-class Echo Mountain Recording Studios, IMAVL produces an original series called The Echo Sessions. It's six seasons deep on PBS with artists from Eric Krasno to La Special, Billy Strings, Leftover Sam and Marcus King, The Motet, and so many others. The streams are free to watch, a free service for the bands at each venue that IMAVL has production installed in. Now, IMAVL is a nonprofit, and fans can donate to their efforts to support the arts by heading to their website, imavl.com. Or you can scan a QR code on a recent show from the IMAVL archive. This organization is passionate about the city they live in and its amazing musical community. They've built such a community in a little valley in the mountains, and then IMAVL does what they can do to support their friends and family and share the magic of Asheville, North Carolina with the world. IMAVL.com. Don't stay home without it. Shout out to my man Josh Blake and the whole IMAVL team. We appreciate the support, the connection. Proud to be aligned with y'all. run all day long Whew, that's the more important than michael jordan pretty lights chicago just about a month ago 25 minute long malevolent creation this is what the new band sounds like it's so incredible and and while we're on the topic i'm just gonna let y'all know i've got two new pieces on live for live music you can also find them on upfullife.com First is a huge Halloween wrap-up. It's a, I teamed up with MB, Michael Browerman from Live for Live Music, a fantastic, gifted young reporter, or younger than I. And uh, yeah, we both kind of tackled different stuff and handled Swanee Halloween and did a like 6,000-word wrap-up of the 10th Hula, which you heard all about on the last episode with Paul Levine. So I encourage you to check that out on Live for Live Music and UpfulLife.com. Same for my most recent uh, long-form feature on Pretty Lights, the comeback, the Sound Ship Space System Tour, which is some next-level, otherworldly shit. Welcome to the Space Jam. I mean, so that got like 4,000 words. Uh, and it's been really well-received. It's only been out for like 20 hours I am very proud of it and also humbled by the reception and the embrace by readers and fans and, and members of the team. I want to shout out Phil and Whitney and Tom G of the Pretty Lights team behind the scenes for taking such good care of us in San Francisco last weekend. It was 
my first anniversary with my wife Alicia, incredible weekend of music that included Rising Appalachia in Berkeley, and then I went again in Monterey, three nights of pretty lights, a late night with Goop Steppa, another after show with Castanea and Fife, uh, not Fife Dog, of course, rest in peace, but my buddy Andrew Fife, or Andy Fife, who uh, is a DJ in Asheville, but happened to be out here with the Rising App crew, along with Castanea, and they did a late night. So we just really soaked ourselves in fantastic music last weekend, and before that, Huluween was nothing short of a dream, so I want to say thanks to Paul and Berg and everybody behind Huluween, and I want to say thanks to all my listeners and readers out there. I've been feeling really supported, really lifted up, seen, embraced, you name it. Um, I really got a ton of great feedback from the Papa Molly episode, which came out episode 70, right before Paul Levine, 71, then the Huluween piece, now the Pretty Lights thing, so I'm just... Uh, in total uh, gratitude right now and I want to encourage everybody if you dig this podcast you're picking up what I'm putting down please rate and or review the pod preferably on Apple Podcasts but really any podcast platform of choice it goes a long way to uh, bringing this show to new ears new listeners new souls and that's a great thing so rate, review the pod, or even just smash that subscribe button so you get every episode, notifications, the whole niner. If you want to holler at me, I love to hear from the people. Send me an email at b.gets at upfullife.com. You can let me know what you want to hear, what you're you're digging, uh, any constructive criticism, whatever. I just love the feedback of all kinds, and I'm I'm grateful for the listeners and for the uh, energetic exchange. Um, if you want to support what I'm doing, you know, throw me a few dollars for making you holla. You can do so. Just go to upfullife.com. There's a support button at the top. You can click that. Send me a few bucks via Venmo. Or if you don't care to use Venmo, but you are dead set on sliding me a few, uh, you can just send me an email and we'll figure it out. I'm grateful for anybody who uh, supports this pod financially with their attention economy with their energy uh it's it's really a beautiful thing and it feels really good right now so with that um that's pretty much the up full update and uh let's get into episode 72 privilege and pleasure to welcome to episode 72 my man Alex Wasili trombonist extraordinaire you know him from Crescent City Institution dumpster funk which you're hearing in the background right now from uh, Venice this summer and you also might know him from Francis Comes Alive Neil Francis's amazing new big band coming to a city near you wink wink Brendan at 10 Adams, book something in the bay, please. Francis Comes Alive. 
back to Alex, a quickie uh, run through his bio because he really gives us this whole journey in the in the content of this conversation. So let's get into who's Alex Vasili besides the trombonist at my wedding band. Shout out, Alex. Thanks for doing that. With a passion for life, art, the hang, and the pursuit of unity through music, Alex Vasili has made a standout approach to music that can be attributed to his unique, unyielding optimism and positive outlook on what would most consider a wild way to live. Who the hell is Alex Vasili? He goes by many names. Awaz, Waz, my dog, your boy, the forever hang. Egyptian-born, American-raised, all soul and all hang. Alex was born in Alexandria, Egypt, raised in Savannah, GA. He's been performing music, and that's his way to take you out of what may have been a depressing day and into what might be the wildest night of your life. Alex regularly performs and tours the world with Dumpster Funk and is Neil Francis, Francis Come Alive, musical director when the 11-piece goes on the road. He's also known for throwing the funkiest party in L.A. every Monday at Gold Diggers at his series simply called Very Good Mondays. Check it out, alexwasili.com backslash bio. Let's hear from the man himself. All right, all right. Well, I am super stoked on this Wednesday afternoon. I'm in Oakland, and I'm talking to Alex Wasili, trombonist with Dumpster Funk. Uh, he's down there in L.A. He's got Chicago roots. We're going to hear all about his story. Um, but I've been a huge fan of this dude since I noticed he was performing with Dumpster Funk all the time. Now, I think it's safe to say you're in the band and yeah. <laughs> bring a whole lot of fucking great energy and trombone and just and vibe. Thanks, so man. it's my honor and privilege and pleasure to welcome Alex Vasili to the Upful Life podcast. Hey, man. Thank you for having me. And hello to everyone who's listening. Hope you're having a fantastic day. I know I am. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, yeah, man. I'm I'm stoked that you could make the time. I, I kind of follow along with your social and your tour schedule. And I know you're a busy guy. And we've, we've been angling to do this for a couple of weeks. So I'm glad we got it dialed in. Oh, hell yeah. And uh, you're in Los Angeles right now? I am. Yeah. I'm, I'm and that's home, home base, right? Yeah, it feels great. <laughs> Today's actually like the first day off off I've had in a few weeks. And I'm I'm really quite enjoying it so far. Well, I got to say, that makes me feel really good that you got a, you know, a scarcity of days off doesn't make me feel good. But the fact that you're sharing your first in a long time with me. And oh, with come on. Our Pleasure's mine, man. Anytime I get to talk to you, it's always a good hang. Hey, the feels are mutual, my brother. Yeah, and, bro. uh, I've been seeing you around a bunch these last few months in different cities, different environments. We're going to get into all the cool shit that you're doing. But tell me what the last couple of weeks have been like in the life and times of Alex Vasili, like uh, where you've been and who you've been playing with. Man, it's been a lot of fun. I won't lie. It's I feel like since Jazz Fest uh, 2023, it's just been nonstop, um, which is a great problem to have, man. It's uh, sheesh. I saw you all over Jazz Fest, but I guess more recently, uh, I just saw you a few weeks ago at High Sierra. That's right. We were doing the Gap Band tribute, which we'll talk about. But yeah, Dumpster Funk's been super busy, man. We've been sort of doing the weekend model, like out Wednesday night, back Sunday, and it's been awesome. Um, sort of the Nashville model, as some people like to call it. Um, but it's it's been cool, man. We've been playing some super lit shows um, for Hungry Crowds. And uh, I just, we, just last weekend, we just did New York, uh, this amazing mountain town called Mont-Tremblant in uh, Quebec, and then down to Burlington. And then flew home, 
Um, the week before that was the 100th Very Good Monday, which I'm sure we'll get deep into talking about. Um, man, yeah, that was a crazy night. And then before that, another dumpster run. I mean, dude, we've been we've been all over the place. It's been it's it's really sort of hodgepodge all over the country, mostly fly dates, which has been a lot of fun. So that's awesome. Yeah, and I'm sure you know it. Either way, traveling is a grind, but I'm sure just flying around is a bit better than the the van stuff. I mean, people get treacherous in the wintertime and stuff. With oh, me. sure. Mountains and whatnot. And yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it is, you know, as Ivan says so well, he's like, you know, we are so lucky to get to, to, to play music as our job. But really what we're getting paid to do is travel. <laughs> you know, it's it's so deep, dude. The amount of hours we spend on planes and we can talk about all that later, too. <laughs> How we spend the hours. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you got to figure out ways to keep yourself sane and then you got to hit the stage with good positive vibe and energy. And I think that that's a big part of what makes you you is you always hit the stage with this just incredible energy that is contagious. And and that's how I first noticed you. Obviously, the trombone is loud and you're big, (laughs) but also pretty loud. (laughs) I'm big, too. but even bigger is the personality is the energy and, and you light up the stage. So. Like uh, we talked off the air I, after High Sierra and on the heels of Jazz Fest. And of course, you were kind enough to come out to our wedding and be in Nikki's band for that. I was, was just like, honor. I need to wave the flag for Alex Vasili because. <laughs> and I, I, like I said, I remember when you just started showing up with Dumpster till now, the ascent, you know, has been just uh, to behold it, to watch it as a fan and later your friend. It's been awesome. So. I feel like my listeners and the community at large, people who love Dumpster Funk, people who love New Orleans, people who, who have followed your career before we even knew who the hell you were, it'd be awesome to just get you to talk about your journey, which I only recently, when I started doing a little prep for this, found that takes us back to Egypt. Yeah, bro. That's where I was wow. born. Alexandria, Egypt. Yeah. Alexandria. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, how old were you when you uh, emigrated? Like six, seven, we were doing a lot of traveling, like early, early childhood. Uh, but my mom's American, dad's Egyptian. Um, dad played pro soccer and mom was the principal of the lower school. Of, it's American school called Schutz American School in Egypt. And um, they met, had me and my brother and moved to Savannah, Georgia, um, which is where I fell in love with music. Uh, I was lucky enough to have an incredible list of band directors um, in public schools that inspired, you know, art, you could say artistry, I guess, but inspired a a serious work ethic um, in, and what it means to be a musician. Um, It was less about band class and more about life lessons through music, um, especially my high school band director, uh, Michael Hutchinson. But before that I had Terry Staten. I don't know if they're listening, but shout out, public school band directors, you know, there's so many lives that those people have changed Um, for the better or worse. It's, you know, they teachers are everything. My parents are teachers. Um, It's just, I have much mad respect for teachers. Um, But yeah, I studied with uh, Carl Polk and Teddy Adams to Savannah, Georgia slash Southern legends on trombone. Um, But yeah, I, I, I was in a, a pretty cool situation in high school. It was like three hours a day of music, public school, um and we played out in public like 60 shows a year we would do like you know the 
radio station picnic or something like that. It was, you know, we weren't getting paid. All the money went to the school so they could afford instruments and whatever. Um, but by the time I graduated high school, I had zero fear performing in front of people. Um, they, we flew, the band would, would fly. I've, I, you know, to, we, we did a conference in San Francisco, went to Australia, went to, almost went to China. Um, it was a good jazz band, a good school um, for music. And I originally actually just someone asked me the other day, they're like, why trombone? And it's a good story. Um, I played saxophone, actually made like Allstate on Barry sax was like, I'm going to be a sax player, dude. I love saxophone. And my mom was like, yo, that jazz band you want to be in in school, um, they need trombone players. And I was like, dude, I don't want to play trombone. Like my brother played trombone and, you know, I, I didn't want to mess with that. I was like, I like saxophone. So naturally she got me a trombone and then got me lessons with, uh, with, uh, with Carl Polk and, and Teddy Adams. And the biggest part of playing a brass instrument is eliminating bad habits early on, puffing your cheeks or standing wrong or not using enough air, yada, yada. But the first time I ever held a trombone was with a, a super professional with me. So I skipped a lot of bad habits. And after four months of playing, I made the district honor band and then, you know, made all state the next year or whatever advanced semi-rapidly on the instrument. I loved it. Um, and I remember I got paid for a gig one time. Um, this is where the story is kind of funny, but I did a, a little gospel clinic with this artist named James Bignon, who's a gospel Grammy award winning dude. And I remember there was no sheet music. There was no reading. He would, just sit in front of the choir and we went to different churches and he would sing the, their parts to them. And then they'd sing it back and he would, you know, bolster the choir with his knowledge of harmony and whatnot. And it was all by ear. And I got a check at the end of a week for like 500 bucks. And, and when I was 15 and I lost my mind, I was like, you know, you know how many fucking packs of Skittles you can get when you're 15 with 500 bucks. Like I, you know, I was so hyped. I was like, mom, like, Oh my God, I just got paid to do that. Like, this is crazy. Like, I can't believe it was so fun. And my parents, you know, God bless them. They're the most supportive people ever. They've been in my corner since before day one. And they were like, dude, you should, if it brings you this much joy, man, you should, you should fucking do it. So yeah, uh, after high school, I was, I was 18. I moved to Chicago where I went to DePaul University. Uh, I had a pretty cool experience there. Studied with Tim Kaufman, Kelly Sill, Tom Matta, Bob Lark, um, super awesome jazz pedagogues um had a had an interesting experience um it's so funny I, I have so many qualms with the way music is taught in higher education um i i also studied with charlie vernon and mark fisher let that not be forgotten too legends in the brass community um but it's so funny how the whole world of higher education music is it's like either jazz or classical depending on what school you go to so it was I was the only trombone player there were by the time I graduated, I was the only trombone player in my year. And I was the only one who was allowed in the classical studio and the jazz studio. So I had to like, you know, they were like pick your battle dude or like someone in the classical studio, you know, studio would say like, Oh, you're slurring too much. or You're playing that too jazzy LOL. And, uh, and the jazz guys were just like, dude, whatever, play it. How you're going to play it. It was, it was an interesting, um, you know. like code switching yeah dude and and to be fair you got to be able to do all of that man you you have to be able to do everything you can't afford to be if you want to be a professional musician who can feed your damn family or whatever or yourself for christ's sake you got to be able to play whatever the hell they put in front of you you know if it says sempre molto sostenuto you have to hold the note the entire duration you know you can't like fall off or whatever anyway 
nerdy shit. But I was I was really into uh, playing and performing and performing live. That was like what I love to do. Um, I met some of my best buds in the world uh, at DePaul and we started a band and we did these things called the funk parties um, that a lot of the homies have come and played on in the last couple of years. It's like a warehouse party series, super DIY, um, you know, rage warehouse. We did 19 of them and they all sold out. They were all crazy. What's up, guys? We're back again for the 11th installment of the Funk Party series. Uh, we're really excited to be back here at Canvas. It's a beautiful space, nice, beautiful, chilly evening in October, and uh, we're, we're really stoked to make some great music. And that was, uh, that was a fun way to sort of combine my love of the service industry of like throwing a party essentially and performing. Um, I re I loved doing, I still love doing that. The 20th one is, is due. I got to start working on that one. But, uh, we, uh, we threw those parties and I found my love of, of funk and soul and hip hop and R and B and all things backbeat black music. You know, I, I've really found a love for it and went headfirst into it and sort of abandoned my jazz roots, if you will, and my soft playing and my classical stuff. And just really, I got into playing with rock bands or pop bands. And um, a lot of my mentors in Chicago, uh, one thing that I, that I took, I don't even remember who said it, but they were like, dude, take, trum take guitar solos on your trombone. And whenever I heard that, like my entire mantra of how to play totally changed man i was it it to me like you think about it a trombone solo jet i mean you see a lot of killing bands you see a lot of great trombone solos but for the most part when you think about trombone you're either laughing at some goofy ass tiktok content of like some kids fucking around on the back of a motor scooter and playing making noise or whatever or like you think of band nerds you know you don't think of like a rock band you know but when you think guitar solo you think of a dude looking fly as hell, you know, like standing and and playing his ass off for the masses and and you know and and killing it, you know, playing hard and loud and melodic and and not um, to appease other trombone players, but to appease non musicians. <laughs> and I've I remember hearing that and just totally flipping a switch. And I started transcribing guitar solos on trombone um, as best I could, you know, um, but. I got really into it and I started playing with this band called Nasty Snacks in Chicago. You may or may not have heard of them. They, they're still around. They still play nine piece funk band. Some of the homiest of homies, some of my best buds in the world.
and I, I got really into it and I was writing horn lines and, and arranging and like, you know, we were having a great time. We were opening for Nth Power. We were opening for, for like the likes of Dumpster. We never actually opened for Dumpster Funk, but um, actually that is a lie. Nasty Snacks opened for Dumpster Funk on New Year's Eve uh, in Chicago at Park West. And I was playing with Dumpster Funk like spot dates and I'll get into that in a second. But I, I found a love for funk and soul and I kind of, uh, I, I latched on to my, one of my best friends in the world, Paris Fleming, um, the trumpet player. We all know and love Paris. Is he nodding? Yeah, Paris is, is the greatest, man. And he really put me on to that scene in Chicago of, you know, sitting in here, playing there, he, going to jazz fest, whatever. Um, but Paris and I started playing together for about a year or two. And then uh, the Dumpster Funk call came. They d- used to do, um, I've said this, I've told this story in multiple podcasts, but it never gets old, man. Uh, they used to do sort of the regional horn section. So in LA, they'd use regiment in the Southeast. They'd use the naughty horns in New York. Uh, they'd use steel town from uh, Pittsburgh. Those guys are awesome. Um, in Denver, they'd, you know, use whoever um, Dallas, same thing. Uh, but yeah, it's an easy way to not have to pay three extra miles on the road and hotels and whatnot. And the sprinter gets cramped. Um and we were the Chicago dudes. They called us for a show in Chicago. And um, it was the day I was supposed to meet my now mother-in-law. And I remember it was a Tuesday. And uh, my my wife is the best uh, in that I got the call for the gig. And I remember being like, Paris, I can't do it, dude. I'm meeting, you know, I'm meeting my girlfriend's mom. I like, I don't want to, I don't want to disrespect the meal. Like we have, we have a thing going on, you know, it's a Tuesday. And he was like, bro, you have to play this gig. You fucking have to play this show. And we have to come over now and you have to memorize the music with me. And it's me and you and Corbin Andrick, one of my best buds as well on sax. And I was like, fuck. Okay. So I, I called Autumn's mom uh, and she was like, can I come to the show? And, you know, that was like the, that was the response, which was amazing. I was like, oh my God, this is so sick. And so I went, ran over to Paris's. We learned all the, the music as quickly as we could. And it was at Concord Music Hall seven years ago in June. And we slayed the show. And afterwards, you know, I got to be friends with Ian and, and the whole band, but me and Ian, you know, Ian's now one of my best friends and we just got to be friends. And then they came back. They're like, yo, well, how about you guys next time we come back? Cause you guys slayed. So we played martyrs in December. that's when Ian and Ivan and Tony asked us point blank. They're like, y'all coming down for jazz fest. And I had no plans of doing so. I was not, you know, it's not like I was not, uh, you know, not for it, but I just was like, no, I'm probably going to be around. And Paris like, you know, stepped on my foot and was like, yeah, we'll all be down there. Like, yeah, we'll be there. What year are we in? You know, (laughs) like this is, this is seven years ago. So 2016, um, 20, yeah. June, 2016. Reference the high school graduation year was, was 09 and college okay. graduation was 2013. Okay. So you're like so this is, seven years gig in funk in uh, Chicago when, when this happened. Yeah. About, okay. well, I took three years off really. Okay. When I, when I graduated music school, I was really into bartending and I wasn't really into music. Um, there's like a weird self-deprecating, like jazz jazz kid world you know where you tell someone great job and they're like oh nah bro it's like i didn't want any part of that scene i was like this sucks like we're we're just 
we're not continuing this amazing tradition of music the way that I want to do it. I don't know. I was not into it. So I quit. I didn't quit music, but I just would, I would turn down gigs and go bartend instead. You know, I was like, I like making money. Like, you know, this, this scene is, is jive. I don't want to go play weddings, whatever. And so I, I supplemented my income, right? My income became bartending at that point, but I found my way back to music and like a year after playing more and getting more serious about it and playing cooler shows with Paris and more, you know, more art gigs instead of uh, we call it jobbing in Chicago when you play weddings in you know, in Boston, they call it GB general business, which is like my favorite term for <laughs> wedding gig GB, you know, and not like not cool weddings like yours where we played the funkiest shit ever with like the <laughs> with, it was essentially nth power plus Dominique Xavier from Ghost Note and then me, Ash and JMB on horns. And then uh, and then Maureen on vocals. Oh my god, dude, that that's green was, band, bro. That yeah. was so crazy. Sawani, so it just felt right. Anyway, uh, anyway, we can talk about. I was grateful that you would play it, given the fact that you play for a living. Oh my god, dude, come on! Oh man, dude, you took you took such good care of us. Like it was a nice reunion. It was a a gig that was fun. Man, it was. Let the record show that at least for me, I don't love playing most people's weddings just because it's like the music isn't happening, or it's not so much that the music isn't happening, but like. I don't know. It, it just feels a little bit like blood money and that's not my favorite thing to do. I will do it if I must, but I'm grateful to say I don't have to do it right now. Um, it will always be there. As I say, if you, if you're, if you're a young musician listening to me talk right now, take the art gig because weddings and, and corporate gigs will always, always be there. Go do things with your friends. If it means eating rice and beans for a week, fucking eat rice and beans for a week and go do something fun with your friends because the the whole life you know, life experience shit is so much more to me, so much more important. And I'm privileged to be able to say that, of course. Um, but if anyone's listening, who's thinking about it, who's thinking about a career in music, I say it at my masterclass, just go do cool shit with your friends. I promise you, if you work your ass off, you'll, you'll get to do some, some incredible things. Anyway, I played, uh, where were we? Yeah, we're in December and they asked if we wanted to play jazz fest and Paris was like, yes, we're going down. So I didn't have a car that worked at the time. So we rented a vehicle. We had a gig in St. Louis on the way down with this, with uh, my friend, Jeff Lavorsi, who had a brass band. And we, after St. Louis, we rented a car in St. Louis and drove it to new Orleans and immediately got out. This is my first time in new Orleans, dude. I got out of the car and uh, we parked at Howlin' Wolf and it was the night Motet and dumpster funk were doing like 1977 and 78 or something. I don't know if those are the correct years, but they were 
it was a tribute or not a tribute show, but a show of covers where you, you know, 1977 so many incredible songs came out 1978 so many incredible songs came out and motet had one year and dumpster funk had the other so like my first five minutes in new orleans we didn't even drop our bags was going to fucking howling wolf (laughs) and seeing the crowd there and i it was i was like you know i'm beaming from ear to ear like oh my god this is the shit for anyone who's never been to jazz fest you'll have this experience your first time there where you're surrounded by tons of people who just fucking love music you know, who are out until five in the morning. It's the best party in the world. And we'll talk more about jazz fest later. Anyway, so Dumpster Funk, they had they gave us one gig uh, at the Sanger, the Treme throwdown that Troy does every year, which is like the littest shit ever. It's like star studded, man. Like all like ev- New Orleans all stars all show up to that one. And then he gets like the craziest guests. For instance, that night was Usher and Juvenile and Andrew Day and uh god who else should i think frida was there of course the whole city showed up and we me corbin and paris drove ourselves down uh and played that gig and then we i we stayed for the rest of the time and we ended up playing nine shows with members of dumpster like ivan would call and say yo come come play this with me tomorrow like learn these songs come sit in we'd love to you know sort of pay and dues and so every day me paris and corbin were staying with our dear friends scott and steph earnshaw and they had these two awesome kids and i remember being like yo can like can we play in your house like we we got to practice this stuff and they loved it they're like yes please play and the kids loved it so we we were rehearsing all this music all day and then going and playing it all at night it was like the craziest week ever I'm just in my head. I'm like, dude, motherfuckers get to do this like every year. Like I'm never going to miss a jazz fest ever again. This is the shit. It's so fun. And, uh, and after that, there was a European tour that Dumpster Funk did and Ian called me. They said they only have room for two horns and they're taking trumpet and trombone. I was like, Oh my God. Yes. Like I'm going to go tour Europe now, you know? And so we went to, to Scotland, Spain and France and the UK and Ireland and it was like the sickest fucking, you know, this is like my first international tour with Dumps Funk. I'm like 25, 20 or was seven. Yeah. 24, 24, 25. And so pumped. And we nailed, the, you know, me and Paris rearranged all the music for two horns, which is a big part of it. And afterward, after that tour, the Dumpster Jews were like, yo, y'all, y'all are the guys now. It's just the two of y'all. Like we're going to bring y'all out on the road. Um, and shit, that was seven years ago, you know? Paris moved on to the motet and now he's out with fucking Harry Styles, which is so crazy. And uh, it's me. It was Ryan neither for a while. And now it's me and Ashlyn Parker. Um, if you don't know, Ashlyn open 
your phone and just type in trumpet and i guarantee ashley will pop up somewhere that uses image for so much shit um but yeah so that was seven years ago man and uh it's opened more doors than i could have ever dreamed of ivan and tony and our and, and nick and ian and devin and alvin and nikki and the whole management team have put me on so much shit and have taken such good care of me and uh yeah that's that's the long and short of it mostly the long of it <laughs> Yeah, man, I love it. I love to hear the, the circuitous journey and all the little rabbit holes. And there's like a, so many things you ticked off on on that journey. You know, I can't count how many times I've had a musician on this show who goes right for the band directors and teachers of their youth. I mean, by name, dude, specific memories like these people shape lives, careers. It's truly amazing. And, and really like it's an unheralded Man. thing. I mean, Dude. so I appreciate that. I appreciate that you that you give them Dude, the depth. People first, talk so much know? in music school. So many people talk so much shit about. I just remember it being so jive and me like calling motherfuckers out. Like people would be like, oh, you're an ed major because you can't play. And I'm like, no, the fuck they are not, dude. They're an ed major because they care about the next generation of musicians. They they give a fuck like their band director changed their lives. And, and there's, like you said, there's almost no glory in being a high school band director. It's your kids and your students that go out and do amazing things. And, and uh, Michael Hutchinson, the dude who like, I'm still in touch with him. You know, he just retired, which is crazy. Uh, he worked well beyond, I think he worked like 20 years past his retirement date, but I, so many musicians have come out of that school that have played in the Basie band, you know, that have played, uh, man, you like Andre uh, Andre Murchison, who I believe now teaches at Tulane, like who played with the Basie band, went through Michael Hutchinson, Alex Nguyen, the the trumpet player. Like, there's so many musicians who came out of that school, and even the musicians who were in the school uh, with me who didn't go on to become professional performers are. You know, there's people that are you know music adjacent that are working in management, that are working in in A and R, working you know all all of that stuff. And it's all due to the band director. Yeah, I just, you know, I, I just take note of how often that happens where the a musician today will just give props to the band director. And I also really found it interesting. I, I'm also a son of a teacher. My mom was an elementary school teacher. Oh, yeah. Also was involved in education after that. So it's just interesting to hear you as a, as a child of teachers and having just the reverence for education and seeing the important role that it plays in in the journey of a musician just wanted to note that and also really find uh just the way that you move through the experience of like the jazz cognoscenti the sort of elitism and the self-deprecation and the that energy that just repulsed you from jump almost to the point yeah, where I you do. put your horn down and then the fact that you found your way back through like community and funk parties yeah. in paris and then you know, a stroke of good luck and probably just good karma, good energy. You put the energy out there, you get it back. Dumpster comes through. And like you said, they had, I mean, I know the regiment guys because they probably oh, they're so awesome, dude. before, you know, so I'm just saying, it's not like that you're, there's chumps out there, but they picked y'all, took you around the world and then put you in the van, which you already acknowledge is something yeah, that you really didn't want to <laughs> do. So I think that speaks volumes about what you bring to the table, you know? But even then, I think it's safe to say, like, you weren't bringing your full self to the stage yet. You knew your parts. Yeah. And you kept it tight. And over time, you got sort of 
liberated or emboldened to be Alex Vasili in Dumpster Punk. So tell me about like gaining that sort of mojo and confidence. And like, did you have to ask Ivan or Tony, hey, can I show out a little bit or did you just go for it? No, no, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it was never a question like that. Um, I think a big part, and I say this in my, my little master classes, but confidence comes from, uh, from preparation in, in my book, being able to be confident enough to get on a stage and play the shit out of a part comes from doing your homework and learning the parts inside and out and, and not just learning you, your part, but learning everyone else's part. Um, if you've ever talked to Tony Hall for five seconds, that dude knows our horn lines better than us. And that's, I'm like, not exaggerating. Tony is, he knows everything that's going on on that stage. And I mean, and and then the, just the mentality that these musicians from the tradition of new Orleans know their music so well. And, uh, there's like a right way to play it. There's more, there's more wrong ways to play it than there is the right way to play it. If that makes any sense. Like you, you hear cats trying to cover the Nola shit and it's, it, there is a way you're supposed to do it, man. And that is by the book. And I'm sure people will argue that with me with that and that's fine, but I don't care. Like it, the, the fact that these people care so much about their music means that as the horn player who just joined I need to learn it the right way and learning it the right way gave me the confidence to show up and play with a little bit more volume or, or balls as some people might say, whatever, you know, but play, play with, you know, uh, with aggression and to feel confident enough to do that. And if you've ever seen Tony Hall perform, you know, that dude steps in front of the monitors for his guitar solos and the people love it. And it's little things like that. where like when Ivan, is is he'll he'll be playing you know a, a piano part or on his nord or whatever and then when he moves to the organ you can see him move his whole body and just like sink into the organ and you the volume and the excitement level goes up and it's just a little performance strategy i doubt they even think about it honestly i doubt they're even thinking about it just something that comes naturally to them i latched onto that and was like yo you hear the crowd going nuts i want them to do that shit for me man come on like that's so fun and uh, I, you know, people always say I'm, you know, the ultimate hype man, whatever. I, I'm getting the crowd into it, but like, you know, that to me, the the band loves that. They they don't have to do it, you know. What I mean? <laughs> like I, they let me do it, or me and the, the horn players, me Ash or me and John Michael will will be getting the crowd hyped. Um, but I guess where did that come from? I think it it came from just feeling more comfortable in this in the the position I was in, and that comfortability or if that's a word um that feeling of being comfortable comes from repetition and preparation and confidence And, and even then, you know, I'm I'm still in my head about uh, about certain things. But I know for myself, the shows that I want to play, I like playing high energy stuff. And I love when the crowd is involved. And it's to me hearing the crowd cheer for you when you're in your own head about if you say you, in your head, you fuck something up during a solo, whatever. But the crowd's going crazy. Like it, do, it doesn't matter. You know, you can keep going. You can do a great job. You can feel accomplished. Um I don't know that that 
relationship between crowd and musician is, is super important to me. And if you've ever seen me play, you probably, you probably know, uh, it's hard for me to not be super excited and I'm not, I'm not ashamed of being excited. I think people, people latch onto that. I love that dude. That is the huge part of it. Uh, is the, your, your sort of like unabashed willingness to just show joy and to yeah. not only be like cheer for me, man, you are the biggest cheerleader for your guy. And that's oh, man. also off stage. Like you are so invested in the well-being, the preparedness, the health, mental, physical. Like I pay attention to how you move move through life, and I see how you care about your guys, and also you take that to the stage and make sure that everyone gets their dap and that that you know the crowd shows love. And you don't do it in a, an annoying like throw your hands in the air, waving like you just don't care. You just you know when a guy takes a solo or is really you know, getting it, you make sure that we let them know. And and you do it in a way that, like I said, it's contagious. And also something like a lot of people are too cool for school, man. They just want to look good for the gram. And you're out there like, fuck that. Dude, and that <laughs> yeah, I'm unabashedly waving my hands and being like, let's go, motherfuckers, fucking put your hands up, you know? And and to be fair though, the the too cool for school thing, like looking super hip is also a vibe too, man. If that's your vibe, like fucking go for it. I'm know? not knocking like, that. I'm just saying you're you're course, the exception, not the rule. Oh, uh, sure. And and we appreciate <laughs> it. And I'm sure you guys do, you know. You know, I, I think another part too is I love cheering on my friends. Uh years and years ago, a, a dear friend of mine slash mentor, um, he he said it so his name's Bryant Smith, incredible trombone player, one of the best, honestly, plays in Chicago. Um, he's a, he's also does like you know all sorts of data and coding and whatnot. But and he keeps a, a sort of low profile right now, but he is one of the best. And I remember early days of my career, like we were talking, you know, I saw I would see someone get a huge gig and I like I would feel like a pang of jealousy, you know, and that's the thing a lot of a lot of musicians deal with. But I remember him saying this one thing to me that completely changed my whole life. And he was like, dude, you, there's no need to feel jealousy for your friend that just got a really killing gig because them getting the gig is adjacent to you. Therefore, it's almost like you're getting the gig as well. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? He's like, dude, think about it, man. They're getting a super dope gig. That means their trajectory of their career is going up, if you will, which means they're going to get called for more killing shit. And when they get called for more killing shit, who do you think they're going to call, man? If you're if you're the dark dude who's like vibing them out for uh, for accomplishing them something, they're not, not going to call you. And I was like, oh, you know, and like, to be fair, I'm not saying that cheering someone on is a strategy for getting work. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it's it only helps the community when you're supporting everyone else and, and celebrating other people's wins as your own. And I feel really strongly about that. And like good things will happen to you if you're out there, like celebrating other people's wins. It's something I love to do. And another thing, for instance, the gap band shit, I called John Michael and, uh, and Nick Elman for that. And uh, that section that was, dude, we had no rehearsal for that. And we kind of aced that gig. I will not even, I don't normally say like, oh yeah, like we destroyed that, but it was, that was a good show. And I felt responsible in my own brain because I called them, I got them, you know, they, they had to fly there. They had to learn all this music. Like in my head, their good time, even though this is not true, like in my head, it's a problem. That's actually something I'm working on. But in my head, their happiness is like, my, I felt like it was semi my responsibility in a way. And that's like probably a really unhealthy way to look at it, but 
I want them to have a good time. So when they're on the gig, I'm standing behind them. I'm cheering them on. I'm like, hell yeah, bro. Like fucking yes to that solo. Or like, yo, we just annihilated that section. Like pepping your dudes up. Sometimes having someone screaming in your ear. My mentor, Marcus Carroll, uh, trumpet player in when I was in college, he would sit behind me in big band and I'd be playing a solo and he would just say, man, play your horn, play your horn. Come on, man. And just like little things like that will will turn your playing into something that you know, something will happen that you you didn't expect you could do as long as someone you care about is telling you you can do it. So I try to be that on stage. I try to be that off the stage. Um, I'm constantly, you know, if I see someone getting a win, I'll shoot him a text. Be like, dude, hell yes. Congratulations on the gig. Like, I'm so proud of you. Like we as musicians don't say we're proud enough you know, of each other, at least, well, that's incorrect in our scene, in our like jam funk soul scene, it's very much love, brotherhood, sisterhood, non-binary hood, whatever you want to call it. And we very much support each other. And I know there are other scenes that aren't really the same. And I do my best to fucking push that vibe deep into other scenes. Cause it's so important, man. We're all in this shit together. It's fucked up for everyone. <laughs> Not just, it know. is, but we are. And that's kind of why I flocked to this. I think like, uh, the audience is it's unique uh twofold one is like, i'm a big deadhead right always have been. Mm-hmm. It's like my first love and i still still love the grateful dead totally and there's certain like the ability to like make a mistake because you are just in the journey and it, it might not you, a mistake is almost relative or subjective you know like because the the greater journey which is based in like improvisation which you can even take to you know coltrane miles wherever you want to root it but for me yeah. i found that as a player i played piano back in the day and also of course as a as a fan and a listener and as a dancer i appreciated yeah. that symbiotic exchange and sort of flow state between band and audience that i found with i saw the end of the dead when garcia was still alive and then fish for many years but it wasn't until i went to jazz fest in 2000 when I was 22, uh, that I was like, I found my people, you know what I mean? So it had the liberation of that sort of laissez-faire flow state thing of the GD and fish, but then a whole nother deeper, more culturally rich lineage of music that was being passed down that, you know, you, you're the recipient of. And, and so to go there as a young person, and and see what was happening you know that I, this past year was my 19th jazz i like to think the only thing oh, I've yeah ever, dude oh that means next year only yeah exactly it's on dude but it's the only yeah. thing i've ever stuck with in my life you know and, and weed and surfing and now my wife you know but, <laughs> totally. but jazz fest outranked all that shit and uh all this to say like when you start the genesis or embryonic like boom big bang of your thing you, you it's in new orleans it's i'm not surprised I sat here three days ago and professed my same adoration for Fest and New Orleans to Frenchie. He's on the next episode. Oh, and yeah. And yesterday, Karina Reichman, who is from New York City, oh, but man. she played her first headlining show in New Orleans at late night at, at the Nile. So she was just right. talking about what that meant to her, you know. So everybody has this connection to that gathering, that city and that gathering. It really is yeah. like nothing else I've ever been a part of. My mom goes, she's 80. This is her 13th Jazz Fest. My wife went with her family and friends long before we were together. So it is a a real, like, a ley line of culture and the human experience. And so I I love it, and I love that you love it, and and a big impetus for everything I do, writing, podcasting. I can trace back to the great Crescent City. So 
that that was a huge goal. Speaking of Jazz Fest, just real quick, it was a huge goal of mine like three or four years ago. I remember, or not even maybe five years ago, I guess. I guess after my first year at Jazz Fest, I just remember saying to myself, like, man, I like, I want to do more. I want to be part of these tribute shows. Like, I remember my first time seeing uh, Earth, Wind, and Power with Rashawn Ross in the section and Alex Massa and Big Paul. And like, it, it was like the most killing shit with, when Kofi was still around. And the first and one at the, it, at the one I guess. Yeah. Yeah. yeah or, or no, it was at, well, it was at Howlin' Yeah, that was here too. That, I, they're both yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, I have recordings on my phone that are that I treasure of just being like wide eyed, being like, fuck, I want to do this. And I had semi arranging chops, you know, um, for anyone listening who doesn't know what arranging is. Arranging is when you listen to a song and you write out a horn part that makes sense, if that makes sense, uh, where you write out harmonies that are that work well on the horn, that, that sound good in a blend. That is arranging. I have a degree in jazz studies and a big part of that is arranging and making clean charts is how I I'm fairly confident I can say that I got more work at Jazz Fest because of my skill writing and arranging and making clean charts and being prepared for all those gigs. So that was a big part of it. I was like, dude, I want to do more Jazz Fest. I befriended Nikki, who's like fucking one of the queens of Jazz Fest down there. Of course, Dumpster Funk put me on everything, all, all Ivan's solo projects, all Tony's you know, solo projects. If, if Claw needed horns, they were using uh, Benny and Zoidis. But just the last time I sat in with them, with, with, uh, with Corbin, whatever, like I, I didn't want to take anyone's gigs at all. I was I'm still I still feel some type of way about that because I know that the city of New Orleans, like they want their own people to, you know, I, and I want their own people, uh, the local musicians to have work. They all have tons of work, but I felt some type of way about coming in and and taking you know work away from what could be a local. The the Nevilles have definitely told me, you know, the whole family. They're like, dude, no, like you're one, you're you're one of us. You know, yeah, I don't want to take work away from New Orleans musicians, but the Nevilles, the Neville family, and my Dumpster Funk family, and my New Orleans family, and a lot of brass players down there have made me feel very much at home um, down there, and for that, I'm extremely grateful. Um, but yeah, I, I, I work hard in arranging and making clean charts. Um, I do the charts for the Nikki and the homies gigs, um, which are super, super fun. Um, the last one, Nick Elman and John Michael hopped on board, though, because I was super busy up until then. But horn players, if you're listening to this, go get good at arranging. Go get good at uh, music notation software, whether you use MuseScore, which is fucking free, or Sibelius or Finale or whatever. And you can call me. I will help you. Please, like clean charts are the shit. Um, they will get you many, many gigs. Um, and yeah, so that was a big part of, or as we were just saying, Jazz Fest is a huge part of of who we are. Once a year, we're all exhausted at the end of it, but it's like the greatest, most awesome fucking party ever, man. Shit. Yeah, this year was particularly good. Um, yeah. 
uh, part of that is personal because I got COVID halfway through 22, like half of New Orleans. Yeah, like everyone. Right. So I, you know, yeah. I went home with my tail between my legs. So this year was triumphant come back personally. And then I was the first time I went wire to wire in about five years, like from from Wednesday before to Tuesday after, which, you know. I mean, you were out every night filming. And... Yeah. Randy does the filming, but I take notes oh, okay. and write the articles and such. And yeah, that again, that's how it started for me, man. I just said, I do, we got to fucking capture this stuff that's going on. Who played with who, what the song, even before we could upload video, just, uh, I was with jam bass back then. It was before live for live music yeah. was even a thing. And, uh, and yeah, from that, just to give you like kind of the, the cliff notes, go yeah, to new yeah. Orleans. And I, even the beginning, I would just go second weekend or a couple of times I went for the whole thing. And every year I would cover a bunch of shows to say, Hey, I want to come to the show. I'll write an article. And then all those musicians, whether it was Carl Denson or Galactic or Dumpster Funk or Lettuce or Soul Live or, you know, the list goes on, right? Yeah. Uh, they would come to whatever city I was living in. For a long time, it was Philly. I lived in Florida, Jacksonville for a bit, you know, now here in the Bay Area. And then there's other drivable stuff. When I was in Philly, I could go to D.C. or Baltimore or New York. And I just started putting together opportunities to cover music and and it was born in the relationships and, and experiences of jazz fest. And so I, I bow to Fest and to the city of New Orleans and to the Godfathers, George, Ivan, Tony, you know, like the people who have been doing Dude. it since way before I got there, continue to do it and 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 not, aren't like closed off to the idea of like bequeathing the songbook and the legacy to whether it's family like Ian or adopted family like yourself. Adam Dykes sure. or, or Nigel or a number right. uh, who have been yeah. brought into the greater family, even if they're not from there. It's, it's, it's honestly remarkable. And I just thought that this year's jazz fest was exemplary in that regard. And I can think I'm staring at this Neil Francis poster over your shoulder. So I want to get ah. into a little bit of Neil, but seeing you, I, oh, we'll I, talk I, about Neil, the Nigel Neil collab at Chicky which was just such an incredible show to begin with. Sober teetotaling keyboardist just dueling, singing their hearts out. And then yeah. you and Corbin roll in and just the energy even cranked. Oh more. man, dude, dude. Oh man, let me talk about that for five seconds. Okay, so we, me and Corbin had just gotten done doing two shows. We had like a five hour rehearsal and then a show and then another show. And I, I'm like exhausted. And, I, and the next morning I had to go and play with Trumpet Mafia at the fairgrounds right? and call times like 11 a.m. And it's like two in the morning already. That was a late show at Chikiwawa. So Corbin hadn't been to Jazz Fest in a long time. He got himself down for the Neil show and was I was like, dude, we'll get you other work. He actually ended up playing Earth, Wind & Power and annihilated. He's one of the most gifted musicians I know. Um, but anyway, okay, so I'm like, dude, I love Neil. I love the boys, but like, I, I have to sleep, dude. And Corbin's like, dude, we're going to Neil. I was like, no, dude, like... I can't like, oh my God, I, if, um, you know, I give in at, obviously at the end I gave in. And then I said, okay, well, we're going in, but we're not fucking playing. I'm my face is just like, I have no muscles left. Like anyone listening who doesn't understand about brass instruments, it's, it, it's excruciating to play a brass instrument. Trumpet players have it a lot worse, but it hurts after a long time. It's like, imagine holding a weight with your arm, you know, for, for hours on end, but imagine that weight is, is held up by your cheeks by the tendons in your cheeks. It's brutal. So I'm like, Corbin, we're not playing. So we walk in and Jack, his tour manager is like, hands us credentials and uh, his manager's right there. 
Shout out Jack uh, and Brendan. Brendan. Yep. Jack and yeah, Brendan. exactly. Jack, exactly. Jack and Brendan. They're right they there. They're so like, oh, good so to me. I just want to. Yeah, they're yeah. awesome, man. They're yeah. Like Jack is a godsend to those boys. I love him to death. He's a good young TM full of energy. He's the best. Um, and we'll talk about the Francis comes alive show in a minute as well. Um, but dude, so we get in there and I don't drink when I play anymore. We can talk about that in a minute, but I don't, I, I'm seven years uh, sober behind the horn on days where I have to play a show. Even the jazz fest going from gig to gig, I'm not having a beer until after. And even nowadays I'm not really even drinking after cause we got to do shit the next day, but no drinking, no smoking. I'm dead sober on stage. And I walk in and to sort of confirm that I was not going to play, I was like, I'm getting a beer, Corbin. You know, I was like, I'm not fucking playing. So as we're waiting for the beers, uh, Neil, I think like saw us in there or someone saw us. I think, and maybe even Brennan was like, yo, you got to go play on on the last one. You have to go play. I'm like, dude, I have my beer in my hand. I'm not going to go fucking play. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I just came here to say, hey, I wanted to hear Nigel and Neil together because Nigel's vocals with the Neil band is the shit, as you know, like, and and Nigel loves Neil's music. And so anyway, so we get there and then I think Neil was like, Gorman and Alex, why don't you? And I'm like about, I'm like, I took a sip of the beer and I was like, are you? fuck ah, here we go let's go come on it'll be fun and corbin's like dude alex will be fun it'll be fun it'll be fun and of course it ended up being fucking sick we both ripped solos over bunny love the last song and yano was up there with us as well and like the whole squad is in the back um you know in, in just cheering us on it was it was a magical moment and you filmed it i think it's on the internet randy did or yeah something. i published it, yeah randy filmed it right yeah That was that was a pretty magical moment and yeah I've, I've been neil's been my boy for like probably better part of a decade dude um i i played a couple gigs with the herd way back in the day i subbed in um for bryant when he couldn't do it he's that trombonist i was telling you about who is a major mentor for me the, his mental game with how you process music is is second to none um but i've been i've, I've known neil since back before he's drinking remember when he was working at the ups store dude and writing songs and it was me playing the demos i showed up hungover to his demo session being like what's neil doing like okay cool like some new songs whatever and then after the session i was like holy shit these songs are fucking great Uh, we recorded them in a hundred degree fucking rehearsal space in the dead of summer um me pj mike star and uh but like no we were recording like on an iphone like in the middle of the room just neil was like i just want these songs like you know i was like okay so yeah, he came on the pod and talked about that, the working for UPS and writing and yeah, man. And and it was around that time Neil and I reference it pretty frequently. Actually, there was a we were at a house party and uh, I was with Neil and we were just both in the back. And he was like, he's like, you know, we we've been friends forever and we're just shooting the shit. And he's he pulled up this like wild question that like friends don't really ask each other, but he was in a you know Neil's a very pensive dude. And he was like, where do you see yourself in like 
three or four years. Like, what are you doing, man? And I was like, I see myself playing fucking sold out arenas and raging shows, dude. That's what I, I'm going to be doing that. And I was like, where do you see yourself? He said, I, I see myself playing sold out headlining shows under my own name. And I was like, let's do it, dude. He's like, yeah, yeah, we're going to go do that. And sure enough, you know, I'm, <laughs> we're both doing that, dude. <laughs> we're both I, it, like, it kind of came true. And I, Neil's work ethic is also second to none. He is constantly fucking working and writing and, and working on himself as a human being, as well as a musician. He's always practicing. He's always reading. He's, he's trying to be a better version of himself. And that's a lot of what his music is about, which is rad. But Neil and I have been friends forever. And on Jam Cruise this last year, um, or I, I've also played with Neil on a lot of his stuff. Uh, I, it wasn't me on the changes record. It was uh, Ricky from uh, from Orgon and some LA cats that Sergio knew. They're, they sound amazing. Um, but Neil would holler at me for any live show. If I was in a proximity, he'd be like, you know, he's like, Alex, he told me years ago, Alex, you're the horn guy. If there's horns, um, you know, I want, I want you to be part of it. So he's like, you're the guy. So anyway, this year on Jam Cruise, he asked me to be his music director and horn arranger for the Francis Comes Alive record. I was like, music director, dude, like what? He's like, I just want you to sort of take charge of rehearsing the band and being, you know, the liaison between him, the horns, you know, I, I'm not like, I wasn't like writing out background vocal parts, even remotely. They, you know, they handled all that, but like rehearsing the band and making sure that we got through the music in time, we had a bunch of rehearsals and I wrote all the horn arrangements for the live show, which took a long time, but was seriously a fun project. And um, I met with Neil before and, and we went over it all and, and made our edits and whatever. And that show was a, a special, special show. I'm so proud of Neil. Uh, that was like a, that's the first time I've subbed out a dumpster funk for another band in seven years. And I felt some type of way about it. It was a private show. So it wasn't like, you know, the end of the world and Brad Walker filled in Brad's a killer as we all know, but I was, I spent the week in Chicago and we rehearsed the shows. It's 11 piece band. All of us Chicago, like people came up together. We all played the funk parties together. Um, fun fact, Neil's first ever show as Neil Francis was a funk party. Uh, I can proudly probably say that but he we we pulled off an incredible record man two nights sold out at talia hall and the the arrangements went well and the masters sound so good um we recorded it to one inch tape because they're all fucking hardos and and love that shit but to be fair it sounds amazing um keep an ear out for when that that record comes out we're going to be touring that record uh, as the 11 piece band which i'm fucking stoked for um but it is really it's it's fun to look back and realize like, Oh, like, how do I put this being on the ground floor of an artist project and not really knowing as it's happening, that it's going from zero to a hundred, you know what I mean? Like looking back on it and being like, Oh man, like I was there at the sort of the beginning of that. And you know, some people get added on later on and whatever, but it's Neil takes care of his homies uh, and, and 
has come up with the same squad, which is, you know, same with the dumpster dudes, man. Those guys have been friends since they were like six or some shit. You know, Ivan and Tony have been friends and worst enemies forever, you know, (laughs) And, and it's just, I don't know. It's a testament to who he is and his camp, uh, for, for sticking with the people that, that have been there for him forever. And I love Neil. That record's going to be sick. I'm, I'm stoked on it. I'm stoked as my first real debut, as I guess you could say, sort of semi music director, rehearser and horn arranger on a major record. Man, I really, I hope I can see a show. Um, I've been a huge Neil guy since actually take it back to Jasmine. So I'm playing the parish. Before changes came out at the recommendation of this photographer, Mark Millman, who's the Yeah, of course. Writer. We love Mark. So he was like, You gotta check this dude. And I'd seen the herd play Firefest and some and some like fire mm-hmm. department uh Yeah, Chris Rager. Right. So I was dude. familiar, but it wasn't until um, you know, one night of the pandemic, we were out in Tahoe and ate a little acid and looked at the stars and we put on changes and I had like a I told Neil about it just like this on the on the pod, but it was like a connection to the music on a profound level. The some of the self improvement themes, recovery, re reconnection with self, healing wounds. There was just so much in these songs. Yeah, uh, the, even before I knew his the depths of his personal story, just it was really uh, I connected with the Changes record in a profound way. And now I've written about him a number of times. I've seen him play behind both records and then i seen you come out with them i want to say twice uh mm-hmm. i saw it uh at the fallberg brewery right oh yeah at yeah the, i was just hanging yeah. though i don't think i yeah, yeah i was just hanging out not play that one? i was gonna say maybe I'm, you know what you know what check it out you could say i technically because i ran out and sang backup vocals for like eight bars on that okay. one just trolling no, I- you know, I was like fucking around. Maybe Didn't I just saw you there, but I definitely saw you yeah. sit in with him the other night at the vaudeville tent at High Sierra, which was oh, kind yeah. of like a mini Francis comes alive in the sense there was a horn sec. Yeah. You know? Three piece horns, man. Yeah. Neil with horns is, is special. Um, it He loves it. The band loves it. I know the I mean, the, they do like 160 shows on the road a year, which is just fucking insanity. And they're I'm not saying they're playing the same thing every night, but like if we did a hundred, we did almost a hundred shows. Dumpster Funk did almost a hundred shows in uh, 2021 or 20, no, 2022. We did almost a hundred shows and like having a sit in or having guests or anything to change it up can add and inject so much energy. Not only that, but you're playing for people you don't get to play for that often. And you're, everyone's trying to impress everyone, you know, and it's, it's a fun environment. Um, and that high Sierra tent show, John Michael played one of the baddest fucking solos I've ever heard him play. And we did Red Rocks with him um, in June. In June, Yeah, we did Red Rocks and it was fucking slamming. That might be the best solo I've ever heard John Michael take. There was no plan for a solo in that section of changes. This B minor long section between changes and she's a winner. And Neil looked up at John Michael and was like, John Michael, come on. And he, dude, he came out and blaze this solo john michael if you're listening you you annihilated that shit bro yeah and it's cool to have different bands pull different things out of people and neil's one of them dudes and catch you off guard and and throw your solo and it becomes super super happening and then when you talk about set list you know it's like funny because um this woman julia who plays the set break music at fish in the arena Mm. is also robert walter's partner but they love Neil. Right. Well, she started playing changes 
frequently at set break and people start fish fans started getting into neil and tweeting at him hey man you gotta gotta play a different set every night we need some some long jams and he would engage i don't know if it was him or brendan or what but on twitter he'd be back and forth you know and, and he'd post up the set list you know he didn't always do that but he started doing that on a regular basis to show the fans hey i'm i'm switching it up you know playing a different if he's playing two nights in the same city might be only like changes and one or two other repeats so that that sort of ethos of keeping it switched up uh is contagious and i think neil has really leaned into it and it works yet you know you're going to get some of the big hitters every night for the for the casual fan that's not a part of the jam thing you know he's going to play the big guns too and i think that's with dumpster is interesting because dumpster for a long time had a pretty like uh standard song song selection maybe not the same every night but you know between the latest record and this infusion of horns um not only is there a bunch of new dumpster songs but you guys well i don't know who decides i imagine ivan or tony but you're reaching back earl palmer stuff all kinds of stuff that dumpster didn't really play 10 years ago in the nikki era the raymond era um just give us maybe some insight behind that like do they call you up and say hey we're gonna Let's work these songs up for the tour. Is it day of? How how do you uh, how does it come about with those like those like uh, traditional classic but deep deep New Orleans cuts? Per- perfect example of that. We right now Dumpster Funk's playing this song called "When the World Is at Peace" by the OJ's. Um, it was pre. Generally, what happens is around Jazz Fest or or uh, Jam Cruise or whenever we're or High Sierra or whatever. Whenever we're going to be on a stage with a group of fans that knows us well, that knows the shit that we play, that, you know, that, that comes to expect, just like you said, like the fish fans that are insatiable, who like, or, excuse me, or the Dave Matthews fans. Um, I'm looking at the set list I have on this. This I have a Dave Matthews poster over here. Their fans with their set, like crazy closely guarded secret that's handwritten before the gig. Like it's a huge part of the fandom. Um, but the dumpster dudes, Anytime we have a set that is coming up for people that we that know us well, Ivan or Tony or Ian or Nick, generally those dudes, uh, they'll have a song that they'll send being like, yo, what do we how do we feel about this one? You know, and it generally turns into, okay, learn it. And then we'll have a rehearsal in New Orleans Um, or if we're out on the road doing it, we call it soundtrack rehearsal where the soundtrack just becomes the rehearsal and then we'll just bust it live. Um, When the World is at Peace by the OJs is not like a difficult song to play in terms of like super noty or whatever, but I think it's difficult in a different way in that it's pretty much the same groove the whole time. And that's one thing that's, I find that's why Dumpster Funk is so special um, because we can play the same chord, the same groove, for like 35 minutes and it never gets boring. And I'm not talking about like crazy fills in between here. And I'm not talking, you know, I'm talking about like the funk, the band is funky before the notes even start happening. And uh, Ivan and Tony and, and all them dudes have a talent for finding songs that are deep, deep in these people's repertoires. Um, for instance, Gap Band, Not Guilty, that tune, like, Nobody fucking knows that song. Nobody Dude, knows that. One. He made me fucking well up with tears. Ivan did when he's like, "Yo, Farrell Houseman played me this in 1977," and I Bro. was like, "Gasp!" Like, wow. Dude. 
They know these extremely deep cuts and uh, they know what their voices, the three of them, Nick, Ivan and Tony can pull off in a way that no one else can. And that OJ shit is it's tons of singers in that. I think there's four or five parts, but they somehow cover it with all three. I sing a little backup, you know, whatever. But so and so does Deb. But dude, like they just find these songs and they're like, you know what? We should the, the, the term for learn this song is, yo, we should bust this. Ivan will say like, yeah, we should bust this or Tony be like, yeah, let's bust it. So we'll learn it. We'll figure out all our parts. We'll learn it at soundtrack and then we'll play it that night. Dumpster Funk doesn't, re- we don't really rehearse. Um, people ask all the time. They're like, when do you guys rehearse? We're like, we, we don't. Um, we're out on the road playing the songs. You rehearse it. You learn your part at home. We come up with it at soundtrack and then, and then play it that night generally. So, and also when I first started in the band, um, I learned very quickly that if Ivan, Tony and Nick are all singing something together at soundtrack, like singing a tune that you better learn the fucking song by the gig. You go to, you know, everyone else, it's like, Oh, I'm gonna go take a nap. No, you're not. You're going to go to your room, chart out the song, learn it for real. And then play it that night. So, yeah, it's been really awesome to kind of hear you take us through not only joining Dumpsta and sort of getting like welcomed into the bosom of that crew and New Orleans and also, you know, other cats that you referenced like Nikki Glasby, Nikki and the homies situation, getting the nth power calls. And then Neil's come up and your close proximity to that and involvement. And I think that that just like speaks to again like what you bring to the table from a energy standpoint and what i've learned clearly from an arranging standpoint which you can trace obviously back to your formal education and those pivotal cats of your youth like you know yeah shit probably sucked in real time those classes (laughs) missing parties and all that stuff but now it's paying dividends and i want you to maybe tell us how you get from chicago to la were there any other cities in between Mm. or no no, so that's that's all autumn. That's my wife, Autumn. Um, we we kind of split up. I, I was still living in Chicago. She came out to L.A. Um, we were split up for a couple months, like nine or ten months or something like that. And I missed her really badly. And I wanted to make it work. So I, you know, grand gesture or whatever, flew out. We had all the tough conversations that anyone in any relationship has crossed the bridge, you know, and uh, I... It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm moving to LA, dude. Like I, that, you know, the grand gesture that was moving to LA and it's like, we're going to figure it out. And this city, it, you know, it, I love Chicago. Chicago is, will always be home to me. 
I've, I think I've lived there pretty much longer than I lived anywhere else. And, uh, I still, I'm, I actually didn't tell a lot of people that I moved. There's some people who still think I live in Chicago. Anyone planning on moving from a major city, don't tell anyone you're moving. You don't need to have a goodbye party. You know, there's, there are airplanes, as I like to say, you know, you can catch if the gig pays enough, take a flight back to the gig, you know, in Chicago and, and excuse me, and it, it'll, it'll work out. But yeah, I moved to LA and, um, I, in 2019, so I had a full year here before the lockdown. So I got to make some friends. I got to meet, you know, a lot of the local cats. Um, I got, you know, I did some session work, yada, yada. Uh, and then the, the pandemic hit and, uh, I guess this is a good time to talk about very good Mondays. Um, but yeah, I, I'm LA was, was really hard for me at first, just cause it's so huge out here, man, the city, not just physically, but like, it's, there are so many people out here doing exactly what you're doing. And for me at first, that was, that was hard. Um, just feeling like starting over, you know what I mean? In Chicago, I was, I was playing with some of the best of the best and that was cool. Um, but I definitely felt like I'd hit a ceiling as well. Like the move to, to LA wasn't entire. It was mostly for autumn, but it was, you know, anyone could say with any sense that for a musician to move to LA, it's not a bad thing. Um, so yeah, selfishly there, they worked out, whatever. But um, the the pandemic hit and I was like, fuck, like it's so expensive here. Like, what am I going to do? Um, Dumpster Funk got this incredible life raft gig for Netflix in the summer of August, 2020. We recorded a score for an animated movie um, and we lived at the Gold Diggers Hotel, um, which is an 11 room hotel in East Hollywood. It was like a bubble, like NBA bubble, but for us, and we recorded six days a week in at Oceanway Studios, it was Dumpster Funk with Rashawn Ross and Skerrick and me as the horns for that gig. And it, so I got to sit between Rashawn and Skerrick for six for fifty five days in the studio, um, getting our asses whooped by incredibly difficult music. But getting to play next to Rashawn and Skerrick was some of the best, coolest shit ever. I think that led to the Dave Matthews shit, you know, happening. Um, I shouldn't say here. Let me rephrase. I'm not going to call it Dave Matthews shit. I'm going to say. And that led to the Dave Matthews shows, um, which were amazing. Um, we can talk about that more in, in another day. But uh, I, this hotel, Gold Diggers, we had a $1,000 tab every day at the bar downstairs. And it's just us in the hotel. And we're, you know, only four of us drink, you know, in our whole team. So we got, I got to know the bartenders really, really well. And after 55 days, you know, and I live in LA, we got to be really good friends and they offered me a job out of the pandemic to bartend there. Cause I love bartending. And I was working Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Mondays were, you know, in LA are so hard to get anyone to do anything. It's, it's like desert. The live scene out here, you know, there's a lot, to, leaves a lot to be wanted out here for sure. Um, but they, I remember asking the booker and the, the whole team being like, yo, can just let me, give me a Monday and I'll pack the bar. I, I'll pack the bar, I promise you. And they were like, I don't know, you know, I, like taking a risk on a bartender that they barely know. I was like, tr just trust me, I'm going to fill the bar. And I called everyone I knew out here. I was like, I need you guys. I, like I booked the heaviest band I could. I was like, it doesn't pay well, but like, I just need you. It was five bucks at the door at first. So I booked like Pastor Funk, um, also known as Brandon Brown. who's like one of the funkiest motherfuckers I've ever played with. He's the Jackson's MD. Uh, Chesley Cheese uh incredible drummer charlie cofine and nathan foley these are my homies anyway the bar we packed it out sold it out the first night and it was that was 
almost a hundred Mondays ago. Last week was the 100th very good Monday. It, it quickly became a thing. It's now I can comfortably say I'm pretty sure it's where LA musicians hang out on Mondays and are in our in our you know functional hip hop R and B scene. But all are welcome. All anyone is welcome, whether you're a musician or not. Please come kick it. But uh, the only rule is no covers. You can't play any covers on the stage. So the band I'll put together just a group of people I think will get along and play well, and it always works out somehow i think everyone i hire is really nice that's like a big part of it but uh yeah it's it's become a, a scene it's become a hang in la which is is hard because this town it can feel huge it can feel uh overwhelming there's so much going on and you kind of got to have a guy you know like you got to have an in and i i proudly say that every monday you don't like we're your guy you know come hang out come meet other musicians come be part of the community come you know be part of this family and we've never had a single write-up in any newspaper not a single listicle of things to do like nothing it's all word of mouth the last five have sold out um we had cory henry in the original funk apostles minus sheree reed two weeks ago three weeks before that or two weeks before that i got butcher brown um all this is just texting the musicians directly being like hey do you guys want to you know and the thing is i don't put the band name on the poster i just put all the musicians names that's kind of the rule because for radius clause reasons and whatnot. So I'll, I'll see a heavy band is in town that are friends playing Hollywood Bowl. For instance, Butcher Brown is playing Hollywood Bowl Sunday. And I was like, yeah, Yo, you guys want to stick around an extra day, play, play Monday and you can just do whatever you want. And the answer is nine times out of 10. Yes. You know, if they're saying no, it's because they have to travel to the next city or something. But Corey Henry and Tehran Lockett hollered at me or Tehran hollered at me for that. And, for his night with Corey Henry and whatever. And it's, it's just been a, a, it's been a lot of fun. It's a lot of work, but it's so much fucking fun. And to have that community of homies every single week where it's, you know, some people call it church. I don't, you know, I don't love that analogy, but like, I get it. The community, you know, like it's, it's, it's a good thing. It's been a lot of fun. And it's kind of fun to have that be my legacy right now in LA of like bringing the homies together to just play some funky shit every single Monday. I love that, man. And it's, again, more of you're just like looking out for the community, looking out for other musicians, kind of being a, you know, rabble rouser, just like getting everyone fired up and together and playing <laughs> and networking and, and not, none of that, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, elitist or, or a gatekeeper. Yeah. Gate no, there's no room for that. that. There's fucking no room for that. That being said, if you jump on the stage and you play a bunch of bullshit and throw off the vibe, we'll, the band will stop, you know, and we do not advertise it as an open jam because it isn't, right. but we'll invite people to come sit in, you know, like if, if the homies are in town, you know, bring your horn, talk to us beforehand or whatever, talk to the band. And, and, uh, you know, as I always say this week after week, Ivan said it so well years ago, he said, dude, there's few things more cold blooded and badass than showing up to like a jam situation and not playing, you know? And I was like, dude, that's so true. You know, leave your horn at home the first time. Just come and hang out. Come be part of the community. And like, <laughs> this is kind of kind of deep and kind of dark, I guess. But no one knows that you're bad at your instrument if you don't get up there and play it. Everyone will just assume that you're good. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> that can work wonders for your career. <laughs> I can tell you firsthand. I mean, sure. Plus, it's a selfless thing to do. Come to the hang. And if it's a vibe, next time play. Yeah, no, I told. Totally yeah, yeah. Um, and I like how you were able to, you know, because at one point you had sort of had to choose mixology or music, 
and then uh you know bartended for three years went back to music but this is you know you're behind the bar very good mondays right a lot of the exactly. time and you're you you treat mixology like an art form everybody tells me you're a fucking sweet bartender so where oh, does thanks. that come yeah, from I... and how do you approach bartending like uh I mean, I, I look at it as the great bartenders I've worked under and worked with, just like my musician mentors. Um, it, I worked under Paul McGee in Chicago, and he has a very much like you're in my living room kind of vibe. He's like, I'm throwing a party and you're all invited. And as long as you're cool, you know, like you can stick around. Um, but and I'm not saying Paul would like throw people out. That's not what I'm saying at all. But like it's it's very much the thing that I love about the bartenders I've worked with is they'll never make the guest feel stupid, you know, alcohol and, and spirits and libations and cocktails can be a very intimidating, very snooty situation. And I hate that approach about pretty much everything, but especially, you know, it's like wine snobs, like no one, you know, I, if I want something sparkling, I just want something sparkling. I don't need you to tell me the, you know, year, date, name, whatever. And I, I take that, approach with bartending is I'll tell someone like, let me just make you something good, man. If you hate it, I'll make you something else. No worries. And that has gone for miles. Um, and I, I, I did work at some pretty, pretty dope bars I, in Chicago. I worked at three dots in a dash, pretty legendary award-winning tiki bar. Um, before that Paris club Bistro and bar with, with Paul McGee doing like upscale French style of service, you know, that, that stuff. Uh, I worked in the kitchen of my dad's restaurant, like washing dishes and deboning chickens and making pizza dough and sauce and shit uh, as a kid. And uh, I've always loved service, you know, like it, like I said earlier, just like, you know, I'm throwing a party and you're invited. And that's how it, that's how I want my bar to feel if I'm behind the bar. And yeah, I, I can, I can shake a good cocktail or whatever. You can check out verygoodcocktails.com. That's my company. We teach people how to make cool restaurant quality drinks from the comfort of their own home. Um, we got some products for sale in there if you want to go support. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, to basically answer your question. Yeah. I approach bartending as if it's a party and you're all invited. I like that mantra and, and I can understand it. I can grok it. And I also like how you have like an innate need to understand the machinations of things, arranging music, the, with, uh, back of house in the kitchen of a restaurant, like bartending yeah. like you you're you just you get inside stuff and you understand how it works and then you do cool shit with it and i respect it i mean yeah it falls under what i said earlier too i think of, of preparation is the the end or is preparation is what gives you confidence to do things um people generally in my experience follow confident people you know i follow my confident mentors and and life has worked out for them and it's working out well for me right now and i'm very grateful and i try to just be confident and do my homework. And, you know, I'm spending all my days learning how to get better at everything I'm doing, you know? So it's, it can be exhausting. And I try to play video games to distract myself from it, but constantly practicing and cooking new things, making new drinks, you know, the whole nine learning new arranging tricks. I got some lessons coming up with arranging uh, legends. I'm really excited about uh, Michael Nelson from Corey Wong's band is was Prince's arranger. And I'm excited to be talking to him soon about some arranging tricks so yeah i'm 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 you know constantly trying to get better at this shit it's never the work never stops man i love it each one teach one because mm -hmm. learning and you're also teaching and you you getting wisdom getting nuggets and then giving the gems to those yeah. who can appreciate it whether it's mythology music 
etc. And yeah, man, it's a, it's a nice window into what makes you tick and why you yeah, have bro. that energy. And uh, normally uh, towards the end of the interview, I'm like, hey, well, what's the future behold? But I feel like between Dumpster, Very Good Mondays, and Neil Francis, you told us a whole lot of what's coming up. And, and I, yep. I also, Nikki and the homies thing, I mean, obviously that special to my heart, Nikki's one of my dearest friends, not just even in the industry, just period. And uh, just as a human. I gave, yeah. you know, we have, we have a long history going way back, you know, Sam Kinninger band, Berkeley shit. But, uh, yeah, I, you know, I went right before the pandemic. I think I told you this off the air once, but right before the pandemic, February 19 on my birthday of 2020, we went to LA. The homies were playing on the 19th of my birthday. And the next day, the, the Angelo documentary was private screening that we got tickets to. Ooh. And so going to that show, I mean, I'd already seen the, her do the homies gig at the leaf at jazz fest earlier uh that the year before in 19 and i told my now wife alicia hey we get, you got to check them out like not just nikki but the homies like that thing for the wedding so we went down to la and to the mint and had such an amazing night and then the pandemic happened and we couldn't get married for a few years but we told nikki i mean we we said whatever you want to do whoever you want to call and whatever songs Dude. you want to play, or just like, here's the first dance, here's the mom dance, and then blank canvas, Bro, go nuts. And she was like, it was Word. so lit. That's, dude, that's the best way to do it ever. That way the musicians are having fun. And when musicians are having fun, the crowd is generally having a fuck ton of fun. Yeah, and it, like you said, it was a super band, and I'm so grateful I'm just coming out to the wedding and playing the homies gig. I, I have infinite internal thanks, as does Alicia. But I wanted to ask, about the stones gig because you're like that's how we got uh, mm. you were talking about the dave matthews gig and had you not played the stones gig i'd say tell me about the gorge and dave but no i want to know about the day the whole day the rolling stones Take us through what it was like for for sure for fucking Alex Vasily. Like, think I just boggles my mind, and I want to hear from you. That was a mega. That was a mega day, man. That was uh, July, late or early July, um, 20, 2019. That was that was a mega year for for me, for everyone. Um, so yeah, so Dumpster Funk opened for the Rolling Stones at the Superdome in New Orleans. Um, we were supposed to originally be right before them on the main stage at jazz fest. And uh, like two weeks before um, uh, Mick had to have heart surgery. And we were like, Oh man, like, like, dude, we were going to like, you know, it's weird when you're on a festival stage, you don't really say you're opening, you know, for someone, you just say you're right before them. Like, you know, when you could, you could say direct support, I guess on a resume, whatever. But we were like, we were so bummed. Um, they got widespread panic, which was totally cool, but like, it's not the fucking stones, dude. Like everyone and their brother and their sister and their cousin and everyone was going to be at that stage. We were going to, we were so pumped for a huge set. And then bam, you know, the stones. They had created so we, a, a special jazz fest day just for that concert. 
That's literally what was happening. Yeah. We were that band. We were, I was, I, when I heard that, I was like, you know, cause so the connection between the stones and dumpster funk is uh, Ivan plays in Keith's band, the expensive winos. All I want to do And the meters opened multiple times and the Neville brothers, I want to say opened multiple times for the stones back in the day. And so there's a connection there. And, and in new Orleans, you know, if Ivan's going to, or if, if Keith is going to come to town, he's going to be hanging with Ivan. So it's definitely Ivan stripes for sure. that got us that gig. And so we were just like, Oh man, like fuck. Oh, well, like, you know, it's just our luck. Just dumpster funk luck, dude. We have the worst luck. Um, and then we got, you know, fast forward to June or something like that. Um, the Stones hit up our management or whatever, hit up Ivan. Or I think Keith called Ivan. It was like, you want to open for us at our Superdome show? We haven't played in New Orleans in something like 30 years. Like they hadn't played a show in forever in New Orleans. And, you know, so I, Ivan calls the band, all of us individually. He's like, yo, so we're we're playing the Superdome. We're opening for the fucking Stones. It's like already sold out, 60,000. Like it's, it's going to be so sick. We got to put together a set list. Let's have a rehearsal. Um, and since it's super recorded, you have to submit your set list in advance, making sure you clear all the rights. And if you're doing cover, it's like a whole thing. So we're like, so in my head, I'm like, Oh my God, dude, like, you know, I've played, I've like played an arena show, but nothing like nothing as a band member, like, you know, where they're going to say my name to the crowd where I'm in, you know, I get to maybe even solo depending on the set list, like what? So I'm super hyped. Uh, we get the set list it, and justice is on the set list, which means I get to fucking solo. And I was like, Oh my God, dude, like that's in selfishly. I'm in my brain at that point in, in my career. I was just like, Oh my God, dude, like, you know, I'm going to tell my parents, dude, like what, you know, like, I, I can't believe this. I've been in this with this band for three or four years. And like this incredible opportunity is in front of us. Anyway, so the day comes, um, their security is fucking serious. Um, they don't show up. They show up. They, and you know what's cool about the Stones? They soundcheck themselves. They fucking still soundcheck, which is unheard of on a band that level. You know, they came and soundchecked and um, we everyone's like, you get to hang out with them? And the answer is hell no. No way, man. Like Ivan got to see Keith and Mick because they're friends, but they, you know, they keep them them pretty separate. And that's how it should be if you want my opinion they don't want to hang out with the openers you kidding me um so so the day comes and we uh it's dumpster funk and the soul rebels coming out as special guests for the last third of the the set we played some dumpster funk originals we played justice but when the soul rebels came out we played 
um, Right Place, Wrong Time by Dr. John. Hearing the whole crowd go, woo, you know, like uh, on the on the little pre-chorus breaks. I got goosebumps right now just thinking about it. It was so epic. And then we played Earl King Street Parade to close it out in New Orleans. The crowd was nuts. They loved it. Um, It was such – it's weird being on a stage that physically large, um, you can't see anything. You cannot see five feet – you can't see one foot past the stage. The lights are blinding. They had skyscraper-sized video walls that are pumping light out into the crowd you can't see jack shit um i just remember my parents came to that show and i remember where they were sitting in proximity so i just remember pointing to that general area hoping that they'd be like yeah like that's our kid you know um but i'm very proud of the band and how we performed everyone's saying their ass off and to, you know what's funny is i was tripping about it the whole time and ivan nick and tony were like oh yeah yeah you know it's you know it's another gig it'll be cool you know and i'm just like what dude it's the stones it's the stones bro like what the fuck and and nick's like oh yeah bro like man i remember playing the tokyo dome with boss Skaggs, you know the first time it opened and i'm just like yo what you know and then ivan's like yeah i remember you know flying to do this like it was just like another day for them and that like that was a cool moment for me to be like oh man i knew they were ogs i know they're ogs but every now and then they'll just tell a crazy story about some shit that you could never even conceive like when nick the other day is like ever tell you the time i sang the anthem at a muhammad ali fight and i'm just like what you know? So anyway, the day this is a long winded answer to a short question, but the day I was like full of adrenaline, we played the shit out of the show. We partied after the show in New Orleans, had the greatest time. And what's cool is since it's a New Orleans band, most people know Dumpster Funk. So for months, even now to this day, people will come up to us and be like, man, I was at that stone show. Like it was so special. They haven't played in New Orleans in 30 years. You know, tickets to the pit were like $15,000 for that show. I'm not I'm like not exaggerating. I remember we looked it up Dave's show like that is fucking crazy. And uh, it was it was a special, a special day. So, yeah, <laughs> long winded answer. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry, man. That's what this pod is all about, especially stuff like that. Because, again, you got Ivan and Tony and Nick have been around the world, been around the block. But like, yeah, you like you're allowed to be over the moon and, and euphoric about it i mean come on it's a sold out sixty thousand stadium you're playing with new orleans legends and then like maybe the greatest rock and roll band of all time the way like i said ivan will be like yeah that was kind of good yeah <laughs> you know it's it's they're 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 modest man it's it's cool it's cool i learned a lot from them in that regard but yeah that was that was a big one and then like, you briefly mentioned the gorge that was also yeah. a major tell us about that a little too. bit too just sure yeah, yeah. To if I if I post this on the internet and say that I talked about Dave Matthews, I guarantee their fans who are the best are gonna flock to your podcast and all subscribe. Their fans are ravenous, man. They can't get enough, and it's it's very uh, it's very very flattering. I've only sat in with them a few a handful of times and and whatever, but that first the gorge uh, we we were gonna open for them on one of their days. They have the Labor Day residency at the gorge. They've had it forever, and that day we played our show and then the minute we're done, we see them dismantling Carter's drum set and Stefan's bass rig. And we're like, dude, what 
the like what is the show over and of course they can't say anything because a leak getting out that carter and stefan have covid people will lose their shit anyway they announced on on the internet as we finished our set that quote dave matthews band would be doing a different format for the evening which means no drums and tony hall is going to play bass for the show tony used to play with the dave and friends project in like oh three and so tony knew all the songs he's like on the record you know for a lot of that shit so tony they have a rehearsal space behind every every gig with dave matthews they have a full room with all the gear rehearsing before every show it's extremely impressive and devin our drummer also learned some of their songs and they were like yo let's have the dumpster dudes come out and do thank you for letting me be myself and sledgehammer and i I think one more tune that night anyway i and they let they were like let's have the horns trade and like me rashawn jeff and ashlyn parker could just go out and trade and have and rip shit up Well, we ripped shit up all the way, um, so much so that they offered us the two nights at the garden um, that we did sold out later a different day. But I remember I got off stage. I've never had this experience in my life. I got off the stage and the gorge is like, dude, what is it? 40,000 or something fucking crazy. And it's like if you've ever never been to the gorge, it's it's a a stage on the on the edge of a fucking glyph. And if you're in the crowd, you see this incredible panoramic view of the stage and then this huge gorge where this river runs Breathtaking. through. But if, if you're, it's yeah. unreal. It's, there's nothing like it. And if you're on the stage, though, you're looking back up at like a vertical wall of people, just like more people than you can even conceptualize. And it's just, it's like a, it's crazy. And the lights are super bright on stage and they do a great job of like, you know, you, when, Someone puts their hands up that the lighting guy turns up the house lights and you can see everyone. It's like, whoo, there's you're you're just kind of taken off into another world. Anyway, I got off the stage and within like five minutes, because Dave says all our names and like, you know, cheering, whatever, encore, yeah, yeah. I had like a thousand more Instagram followers. They all found very good cocktails through my uh instagram they bought tons of syrup they all wrote me emails on my website the fans like wrote me messages on on, like the kindest like like oh man i can't even begin to they still do it to this day they're like man like alex is close to where dave matthews is like is he gonna come out and play you know they remember and it's it's crazy man i'm i like i said i'm very flattered um it's so much love and uh they love hearing the back you know behind the scenes stories of how things are going just last week i was in chicago for a thing with uh some friends of mine and dave and them were playing on friday and saturday and i was talking to jeff and rashawn and they're like oh yeah well you know we'll get you another day like whatever whatever but i got to hang with jeff and they their camp their fucking rock stars they're the coolest nicest people dave like remembers your name and is down to earth dude it's the same crew for 30 years i got nothing but respect for that entire enterprise and organization 
Um, there's so many haters out there, but fuck all of them. He's a good dude and they're a good band. They can fucking play. And the fans are crazy. It's wild. Yeah. <laughs> they know they're crazy too, dude. Dude, I, I'm not a hater. You know, I can't say I, I listen to or go see Dave Matthews a lot, but because of Rashawn and the Lettuce Connection, I definitely pay attention. And like, I definitely admire what he's built community-wise, music-wise, like just the way that the DMB has moved through the different eras of music and stayed true to who they are. Nothing but respect. And I think, first of all, sidebar, Rashawn and Jeff's like Jazz Fest takeover this year. Dude. Ridiculous. The Gap Band show. Um, okay. You want to talk about, I don't really get nervous. Like I said, I've said it a million times in this podcast already that, that preparation, get rid of any sort of nerves, but man, when I heard that they were both just going to come through and sight read all my charts that I made for the Gap Band show, and we had only had a couple of rehearsals, and so I was kind of cueing the horn section, like, yo, okay, like, moving on, like, eight bars to go, like, coming in, sort of MDing back there, the horns. When I heard that both of them, two of the baddest horn players on earth, plus Ray Mason, who is one of my dearest friends on trombone, he's the fucking... Dude, he's the studio cat. He's the trombone player on like Uptown Funk and shit and, and beyond. But gifted, talented friend, like the fact that the horn section doubled in size 20 minutes before the gig and they're all reading my charts. It was a huge honor for me. And they had the greatest time. The, like we, Me and Jeff talked about it. He was like, dude, I had so much fucking fun at that Gap Band thing. I know it's fun for them to come and do some different type shit like that in a small cramped little room and just rage music, you know? But yeah, they're, they are... Rashawn and Jeff are two of the coolest, baddest musicians I've ever known who like, you know, we have a little group chat and we, you know, send each other memes and shit. They're, they're, they're goofy ass dudes, just like the rest of us and music nerds, just like the rest of us. And uh, we're constantly sharing music. It's Rashawn's adjacency to the jam scene too is it's inspiring to see him take what he did with lettuce and whatnot and bring it to the stage as big as Dave Matthews, man. It's, it's, it's just like I said, like the tentacles go far and wide. And I just yeah. seem like every, sh- and there's a lot of shows going on at jazz fans, but for four or five nights there, two and three shows a night, Jeff and Rashawn come in the door, ask him up on stage, blaze out two tunes, dip out. Then I'd see him two hours later, Chicky, then up at the leaf late. And then yeah. they were out. And, and, but the apex was definitely that gap band. And not to take anything away from High Sierra, I think they were both great. The Jazz Fest one was three years in the making, and the yes. elite horn section and the or, oh, like One Eye Jacks, where it all began with, or with Earth, Wind, and Power. Were you playing yeah. in the band yet when the Tower of Power Greg Rico thing happened at Great America? Oh yeah, dude, dude, that was ridiculous. That's man, it's funny. People ask me what the craziest dumpster funk moment in my career was, and it, hands down, that. Let's go out on that tip. Uh, sure. That was that was the coolest. When I heard that that was even a possibility, I was fully fucking tripping, dude. I like Tower Power. That's that's the band. If you're a horn player, you know. I know there's 
tons of other great horn bands, but like, dude, to me, you want to talk about the tightest horn section ever. It's the goat it's tower power. And when I heard that that was even a possibility, cause Ivan and, and, um, Ivan and Amelia were in, were in rehab together and we're sober together. Like that, that they're friends through that. I was like, dude, please God. I don't like, I'll pay for that to happen. I don't care about my, like, please let it happen. And uh, we did it at the great American music hall. I'll never forget the phone call that when Emilio called me, I was on a gig. So I just had this random number, but I have the voicemail still on my phone. It's like, hi, this is Emilio from tower power. You know, um, I wanted to put you in touch with our arranger. Cause they're going to write you your own fucking part for the gig. That section, they don't go sit in anywhere without a fully arranged part. They roll as a unit. They have an arranger. His name's Dave Eskridge. He's on hand. Dave called me and asked how I like my charts, bro. I've never had anyone ask me how I like my charts. It was unreal. It was, it was sold the fuck out. And we played the fucking living piss out of those songs. And I memorized it all and was like geeking out the entire time. There's rumblings that we're going to do it again. I can only hope and pray because it was, it was a dream come true for me to just even be in the same room. You know, I was really trying hard not to fanboy. It's like rule number one is you don't do that. But I was, you know, we're sitting in the green room. I'm just asking him questions or telling stories. You know, how could you not freak out? And then afterwards, um, Tommy, the tenor player invited me along with Amelia to go sit in with tower power with just their whole band in LA. And I got to go, they let me solo on what is hip. And it was like, it was, I called my mom and you know, like crying on the way home after that. <laughs> I was like, mom, like what the fuck, dude, I just got to, just got to play with tower power. But like, yeah, they're the coolest dudes. They're so nice bro in their backyard and they fucked with us so heavy and you know this is on a nerdy tip a musician so when you're playing a horn you have to just slightly anticipate um there's like a millisecond that happens between the air and your embouchure which is how you put your mouth on the mouthpiece and the air moving through the horn it takes a, like a microsecond to produce the sound out of the metal resonating from the horn so you have to kind of anticipate this is just a thing that section when you're standing next to them on stage, it feels like they're playing early. They're so locked and playing so they're anticipating the beat so hard. And Dumps of Funk was on the, we're on the way far back side of the beat. So having those and Garibaldi played with us, Dave, their drummer and Gregorico and Devin were playing not all three at the same time, but two and two. And it was mind blowing to have that level of expertise and skill as a unit, as a section playing that far ahead of the beat. And so you go out into the crowd and it's like, this sounds so rock solid tight. And you referenced it with the very good cocktails. Uh, I love that, you know, the DMB fans rallied because, you know, I guess the, the Labor Day gorge thing is so sacred to them. And it could have been a wash were it not for the dumpster crew stepping up. So I'm not surprised 
that they've stepped up and, and supported you and like, you know, you kind of saved the day. So I wanted to ask, how can my listeners who probably won't turn out in the same number of droves, uh, the t- I mean, I'm on the receiving end of a lot of support and I know the people that come on this pod are the same. Where can people yeah. uh, get some very good cocktail stuff? You just go to verygoodcocktails.com, click the shop button. Um, we make this, this syrup, it's called gold fashion syrup. You add a quarter ounce of it to two ounces of any spirit, add ice and bam, old fashioned immediately. Um, it's, it's a, I make it by hand here. I know you're, you're not really using the video or whatever, but this, this is it right here. This black, yeah, this, this black and gold bottle right here. Awesome. Yeah, man. Um, but yeah, it's a, a fun syrup that we make. Um, you can go to my website, alexwasili.com. You can buy my merch. I got t-shirts and, and all the, that stuff for sale. But the best way to support is just come out to the show when we are rolling through your town. We go everywhere. We play everywhere. Um, we, you know, come come buy a ticket. It means the world. And not just to me, but to all your favorite bands. It's the best way to support them is to buy a ticket to the show. previous episode of up for life from like november of 2021 check that out it's francis comes alive you heard a little bit in the interview now you're hearing bunny love the last song on the francis comes alive lp that just dropped there's a concert movie that's coming to some cities and the live band which alex Vasili, musical director coming to select cities and hopefully select more cities i want to thank alex that was an awesome conversation. He did a lot of the heavy lifting. He's not afraid to talk, and we love that at the Up for Life podcast. Any interview host loves a guest that enjoys talking, and it was all very interesting and informative and enlightening, and I'm grateful for his time and energy. Thank you, Alex. Check out all things Alex Wasili. Click the link in the show notes. And Francis Comes Alive is on tour right now, and Dumpster Funk is perpetually on the road, one of the hardest working bands in the game. Uh, so you can't go wrong. And then if you're in LA, particularly on a Monday, you know what to do. Uh, we're going to move on like we always do about this time the Vibe Junkie Jam. And uh, I selected an old song, a classic, a cutty, deep, deep nugget. Uh, it was recently Idris Muhammad's Heavenly Birthday. I'm not sure what number, but it's probably in the 90s by now. Uh, other than Adam Deitch, I would say that Idris Muhammad is my favorite drummer of all time. He's on all the great 
or not all, but many of the great classic Blue Note Rare Groove records that so much hip-hop has been mined from. Uh, I talked about it with Jesse Page a little on uh, the owner of the Blue Nile, New Orleans, a bit about Idris when he came on the show during Jazz Fest one year. Also talked deep Idris with Weedy Brema, who was a direct relation to Idris uh, before he became a Muslim he went by Leo Morris so you might see him in some like late 50s and early 60s records uh, credited as Leo Morris and then he uh, took the Islamic name uh, Idris Muhammad for the you know majority of his adult life so I'm gonna play an obscure track called hard to face the music from uh, I think it's like 1976 record uh, called House of the Rising Sun and it's got Eric Gale on guitar um, this is actually an Ashford and Simpson like R&B pop song reformulated as like a jazz funk rare groove banger so that's how we're going to finish strong Idris Muhammad Hard to Face the Music from 1976 and from there I'll wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving. Hopefully you'll hear this on or around Thanksgiving. I'm trying to wrap it up before and or on the holiday. This is Wednesday afternoon. Um, I'm going to follow up with another one pretty quick like I did last time. Bang, bang. I know it's weird cadence and kind of no real schedule. But I have some time and I have a bunch of conversations in the can. So I need to get them out. This Alex Vasily conversation is actually like two and a half months old. So, uh... Yeah, I really need to make my way through a few really awesome podcasts on the way. But right now on the way, we've got the one and only Idris Muhammad from the album House of the Rising Sun, the Vibe Junkie Jam. It's called Hard to Face the Music, and that'll do it. I want to say goodbye and job bless. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Yes, indeedy.